0: And I think it does allow us to talk our customers through a problem and to the solutions that are possible and help them have as many tools at hand so they can make a decision that fits their brand's needs and then also allows us to continue to work with them.
1: This is Evolve CPG a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. If you like our show, please share it with your network and leave us a rating and review. You can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Kimberly Schaub, research chef and host of the Pizan Moss podcast about finding her place in the food industry, her long-running podcast about culinary careers, her focus on health and sustainability, highlights from her food product development career, her MBA program, and so much more.
0: Well, my name is Kimberly Schaub. I am the founder and host of the Peas on Moss podcast. That is a word play on mise en place. And that's a culinary term about having everything in its place. And really the name came from A, having to learn how to pronounce it in culinary school, and B, because careers in life don't really go as planned. So you can have your mise en place all sorted out, but really everything kind of goes sideways quickly. And the whole objective is to help people fall forward into whatever careers we're developing, whatever lifestyles we want to pursue. And so the podcast really focuses on careers and the food industry from the perspective of a research chef. I don't introduce myself as a chef, though, because I don't own a restaurant now. I don't operate a kitchen. I am in a business development role for Griffith Foods, where we are a custom dry blending company out of the Chicago area, but are actually in 11 different countries, 30 offices, And essentially, if you can think of it, we can design it for you. We do product development in dry and liquids and sauces and dressings and in breadcrumbs and coder systems. So that is Griffith Foods. The podcast really focuses on the varied experiences that research chefs and product developers can have, kind of showing that there are a lot of opportunities post-culinary school that people can do who love food, want to serve people. You don't have to be in restaurants you can go into this gigantic industry of the food industry and uh, build a really great fulfilling career there.
1: Awesome. That's cool. So many things I even want to touch on just in your intro there. <laughs> so I love that mise en plus kind of I, I didn't realize that that's where the name of your podcast came from. So that's a a phrase or sentiment or philosophy that I'm going to have to look more into because I love that that's part of what we why every Episode of Evolve CPG, we start by talking about your career path because I want people to know there are many different ways to enter into CPG or support CPG or become an entrepreneur or, you know, be a writer or whatever. There's just so many different paths. So just keep going and you'll find yourself somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, really a fun exercise. I've started practicing and I learned about this in my MBA program. I study. The University of Victoria has a Sustainable Innovation MBA. So, in my free time, when I'm not at work and I'm not doing my podcast, I do my MBA. Which, yes, Hello. I'm insane. <laughs> Don't do it yourself. <laughs> Don't try this at home, right? But the MBA program really encourages people to look at their social network—not how many follows you have in that kind of social network, but really put yourself here. And then map to all of the people you're connected to. Think about your school background, your sorority or fraternity, the other activities you do, the sports you do, active groups that you're part of, you know, activist groups you're part of. And think about where all of these people go and what they do and what brought them to your world. And you really start to build out this really big understanding of your place and time here right now. And it really, to me opened up so many opportunities to learn from so many people with experiences. Honestly, that's, you know, Gage, you and I are connected that way, because our worlds connect through CPG, through a lot of entrepreneurs that we both follow and work with. And we've gotten to have some interesting conversations about the CPG world, about the food industry in general, and the mission that each of us carries in food, right? We're Here to serve people and to nourish them, and that comes out in different ways. You from marketing and strategy, me because I sell ingredients to companies that are doing things, and I have an R and D background. And I like to say, you know, give me your crazy recipe idea, and I will help talk you through all of the hurdles you're going to have to jump over, or through, or move and around to get there. Because your idea is worth exploring and figuring out how to bring it to the world, and I can help you do that. And so. That was a fun exercise to see that I was much more connected to the world than I thought I was. And then you can really start to measure up your superpowers to that. And your superpowers, I'm just going to ramble into that, are the things that you find easy that other people don't find easy. So my explanation of that is Superman didn't really think that he had super strength, right? Lifting a car or a bus off an injured person was just what he does. For us, that seems incredible. For him, it was like, oh, okay, you know, I can do this. So when you think about the stuff that you're really good at, your superpower is the thing that comes to you naturally, that you just jive when you're in the flow with that, double click on that. Really explore those things. That has helped so much. It helps me talk over my personal imposter syndrome, and it helps me get to meet people like you, Gage, and other people in your network who have incredible superpowers that I'm just surprised by and love to be part of, but I don't have those strengths. And that's why I like to make these friendships.
1: Awesome. That's cool. So that was all part of the sustainable MBA is doing that mapping that and then identifying your superpowers.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because then you can know how to help in sustainability. Use your strengths, right? Don't try to go into a place you're not strong. Go into a place you are strong.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. It's like all of a sudden I'm spacing on the name of it, Ikigai, the kind of framework for kind of finding the intersection between your uh, what you're good at, what you are passionate about or what you love mm-hmm. doing, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. Yeah. And if you find the combination or the center point of all those things, you'll be providing the world with your superpowers in a way that you can do it, be fulfilled by it, and actually make a living off of it, which is I think living the dream if if you want to define living the dream, that's probably pretty close to it. I like although that. some people might just prefer not to work, but <laughs> I like being productive. I like contributing to society, so whether it's work or raising a child or building community or whatever, I think having some way that you're giving back or contributing, I think is really important for emotional and mental well-being.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I, I like that you gave several very different examples of that being the sweet spot, because it could be really easy to think that the sweet spot is the way you make money or the way that you know your title is impressive or something like that. But there are so many other places that finding your sweet spot and your super strength or superpower are. And so I really like that you did expand that view kind of immediately.
1: Nice. And speaking of sweet spot, it seems that you've had a focus on food and nutrition for your entire career as far as I could tell. So where did that passion originally come from?
0: Oh, well, I'd love to share the story of how I had this long, you know, legacy and history of families cooking together <laughs> and things like that. It really, I think, comes down to the fact that I've always been fascinated by the food I ate and what I could do with it. So I have a couple of specific memories that usually involve me doing something ridiculous with food. And my parents actually embracing that. It wasn't always great. Let me be clear. I've burned the heck out of every pan I've I've ever touched. And I've set off every single fire alarm in every apartment I've ever lived in. But, <laughs> nice.
1: At least you're consistent.
0: <laughs> but the loved ones in my life were kind of that way. They're like, okay, well, that wasn't terrific. We're going to do pizza out tonight. But, you know, keep doing that. Keep trying that. And I think My love for food came from the fact that it was the courage to try and then the encouragement from my loved ones to keep trying until it got better and less (laughs) burny. And I have this other memory of my parents going away for a weekend. I was in middle school and I decided for some reason to puree everything in their fridge, literally everything. And my mom, my mom's a good Midwestern mom. So she had this really atrocious like beef casserole thing in the fridge And I pureed it with a lot of water, of course, because, you know, you also can't burn out a a blender engine. And I left everything. I used every bowl and cup in the house as well and labeled everything as a pureed beef hot dish, pureed, (laughs) whatever. My poor brother, it was probably the worst weekend of his life because he was being experimented on constantly. But yeah, it was that kind of stuff that really led me to nutrition science I had teachers at Pepperdine University who were really encouraging of the fact that I looked at the world a little differently. And then I was in the Air Force briefly. They paid for college. And then even getting out and going into the restaurant world, when I entered culinary school, I said, I want to be a research chef. And the chef instructors were like, that's not a real word. It's like, okay, well, (laughs) somebody told it to me, so I'm going to try it. But then they also encouraged me. They also said, well, this chef is doing these unusual things and I think you should go intern for them. And they really opened doors for me and allowed me to continue exploring that passion. And I think I have, I don't think I'm fearless, right? My imposter syndrome is super plenty loud like everyone else's. But I also try to overcome it because I'm so dang curious about what it would be like to try something. And so I just go with it because what's the worst case that You know, worst case scenario, if this doesn't work, what could you do? You can move home. That can be worst case scenario. You can go find a different job. You can compost the experiment, you know? And so running through all of those, it's like, well, okay, I'm going to give it a try, you know? Fire small bullets and and not the big cannonballs, if you want to borrow the Jim Collins kind of image, so that you understand what you're aiming for and then fire your cannon once you're pretty sure of your shot. And I've been given those opportunities and I try to run with them as fast and hard as I can.
1: Wow, that's awesome. So, how did you know there was such a thing as a research chef? It sounded like the school you were going to didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> so, that seed must have been planted somewhere in your mind. Yes. How did you know it existed?
0: Yes. Thank you so much for asking. So, I was volunteering at the Pike Place Senior Center. It's like down the hill from the market. And I was really trying to get to know the Seattle area. I had just moved there in 09. And so I was volunteering there. I was peeling more potatoes than I ever thought could possibly exist in one shift. <laughs> and the chef there was like, well, what do you want to do with your life? You know, you're, you're a college graduate, but you clearly are peeling potatoes. So what's happening? And I was, I was in Seattle because I was trying to get into the University of Washington's Master's of Public Health program. They have a MPH RD program, registered dietitian nutritionist. And because I had a nutrition science background, I thought, okay, well, if you go to grad school, that's what you need to do. So I was there, peeling potatoes, miserable as ever. And I was like, yeah, I want to be a chef RD. But what he heard was R&D chef. So I must have said RD chef, and he heard R&D chef. And so I spent the entire shift talking about how cool R&D was and being a chef in that space. And how you could really bring your love and passion and knowledge about food into food product development and impact, you know, millions of people by doing CPG product development. And I was like, wait, what? You know, so I actually went home and was like, I think I should go to culinary school and learn to be a chef and then try going to this R&D. And unfortunately, Google was a thing at the time. So I did get to Google it and try to figure that out and learned about the Research Chefs Association, and learned what their qualifications were, the schooling, the network you need. And then was so fortunate to meet incredible people in the RCA who mentored me. And, and honestly, this is where the podcast came from, too, because I was blogging about this and got to have these phone calls with chefs of different stages in their careers. And they gave me incredible advice. And I, I was able to start recording those conversations and putting them out there as the Peas on Moss podcast but really, it was kind of selfish, too, because I was trying to learn about this career field and what interesting spaces existed there and where, again, seeking that superpower opportunity, where can I be good here? Yeah. So, it was all because somebody was just chatting away about their career and they loved it and and spread the love to me, I guess.
1: Yeah, and it's cool that it was kind of an accidental conversation, too. <laughs> like, misheard something, went off on a riff, and you're like, ooh, that's, a, that's <laughs> really interesting. Actually, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but... Tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool.
0: The lesson I learned from that is it's those little conversations that we have with people that can be the most impactful. So if you're, you know, if you're being a jerk, then potentially that could ruin someone's day and potentially change a, a trajectory for them. But in the more positive, if you identify that person's superpower, because you do truthfully see that in their lives and you say, I see this passion in you, how can I help you develop that? It doesn't have to be this formal mentorship sort of thing. It can just be a comment. And that could be enough encouragement to have somebody pursue that space.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that ties back into manifesting to some degree that, you know, some people write it off as like this spiritual kind of thing that where there's the universe and it knows what you want and then, and then you just have to identify it yourself and then the universe will make it happen. But in a more like, less woo-woo kind of way. I think it's literally just you knowing what you want and talking about it or just having conversations with people. And then when they know what you want, it's easier for them to help you or to point you in a direction or for anything else to come to your perspective. Like As soon as you think yellow cars, you're going to see a lot more yellow cars, right? So, you're going to see more opportunities. You're going to talk about it more. People are going to look for those opportunities for you. And then magically it happens. So, it's like part magic, but also just part Having those small conversations, like you're saying, the power of a random conversation with somebody that you didn't know was going to guide you in any way. And next thing you know, you're off on a new career path or found a new book or a new mentor or a new hobby or a new whatever. Yeah. (laughs) It's super powerful.
0: Exactly that. You know, and it can be multi-year. So just because you mention it to somebody and you feel anxiety saying, oh, this is what I want to do, that person will hold that knowledge in their head, hopefully for your, for your betterment. And then eventually they'll run into someone in their network who may have access to a community that you want to be part of or to a person you wanted to meet, and then bring that back around to you. But it it can take a while. I guess it's not one of those, you meet somebody at 5pm of the start of a networking event. And by seven, you've got, you know, the connections to the rest of the world. There have been some opportunities that were kind of slower burns, and those are all really positive because they sometimes feel a little sweeter because you almost forgot you'd put it out there and asked someone to keep that in their mind. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. As long as you open yourself up to possibilities, there's so many possible paths. Like, speaking of which, I think that's cool that that's part of your reason for the Peas on Moss blog is, or podcast is that there's a lot of different paths you can take in food. And people don't know all those paths. Same thing with design. There's a lot of designers who are making it part of their mission to go into elementary high schools, junior highs, elementary schools, and try to teach kids that there are paths, career paths, like viable career paths in art and creativity and other things like that that I think most people don't know about. So, they discourage their kids from pursuing more creative fields because they don't know there's actually really great careers in creativity. You don't have to be a starving artist, right? So, I think the more we can let people know what the options are out in the world in various different focus areas, whether it's food or design or law or whatever, there's more than a hundred ways to practice every different profession, probably, right? That that would actually be an interesting book or something. It's like That'd just breaking title. down for kids who are like in high school or something and they don't know what they want to do. Like you could have a book of, okay, so you're kind of interested in medicine. Well, here's a hundred different careers that you could have in medicine or you're interested in food. Well, here's a hundred different careers you could have in food. Something like that would be really cool. So, I think it's powerful that you have the Moss platform to help folks who didn't know anything about all these different paths, find one of those paths for them?
0: You know, one of the things, as you're saying that, almost more than a book would be to invite people in our networks to volunteer in their communities and help demonstrate and be that physical example of another way to live out a career. Because it's one thing to, I guess, enter a lot of personality traits and interests into a search engine and then spit out some careers, which always sound really cold on a results page, or even in a book. It could potentially sound kind of boring. But when we're more involved in our communities, wherever that is, if that's a religious organization, if that's an activism group, if it's helping a medical community focus group, any of those ways are just ways to start showing up. And it's not even that you're going in to do career presentations per se. It's being involved in your community And then being that person who does get to live this out, because you're also changing the parents' minds when you meet them, right? It's like, oh, hey, Gage is an artist, and he's got a really great career, and these all these network things. And that is the kind of silent way of being an example for them in a more powerful way than if you'd written the most eloquent book. Um, You know, even thinking about how I would have chosen a career path if I had met Someone in my field when I was in high school, when I was in college, but even younger, if I'd met them when I was in elementary school, if I'd seen them in the religious organizations I was part of as a child, like that would have been really powerful to me. And that's why I really hope that this is a call to action to people. Wherever you are, however much money you have and time you have, show up in your community because that's going to be, again, those quick little conversations that can be very impactful for someone.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I feel like I should do more of that. I spend most of my time talking more to like college students about how they can bring their design career to life through impact and sustainability and purpose and such, because that's not always taught in schools, right? You think you just have to go get a job and work for Coca-Cola or Nike or something like that. You don't know that you could actually use those same skills to go work for companies, making the world a better place and help them do it in a more strategic way that will get more measurable impact right so but with that said i should or people all people out there should be spending more time planting those seeds earlier right because for some folks it might be too late at that point they already spent (laughs) their 50 grand on a education like they're already kind of bought in and committed but like how did they decide to major in design in the first place like how do we plant those seeds earlier and get more folks Especially if we're trying to diversify the field because, you know, of course, a bunch of privileged people who don't have to worry about supporting their family might pursue careers that seem a little loftier. Whereas if you're coming from more of an an immigrant background or a poorer family, you're probably going to be encouraged to go into something like science or engineering or law or something like that that for sure will pay well, right? But if more people knew there were equally good paths, like I know – Designers who make just as much or more than my lawyer friends, right? I think there are plenty good paths in creativity, but we just need to let people know they exist or in food or you know, science or whatever else it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, to your point from earlier, like there are a hundred thousand different ways we could live this out, even with identical degrees. So, and some of that is a, a measure of the opportunities that you're born with or that you're around. And some of it is what you do with those same opportunities. Your personality definitely plays a part in it. And then your courage, right? And courage is something that we can work on. Some of those other attributes in our lives, we don't get to influence very much. But courage, we can practice. And it takes a lot sometimes to put your your skill out there. But the nice thing about social media and and self-publishing on the web now, right, Gage, is, is we can put our own stuff out there and say, Okay, well, even if only my mom or my partner or whoever <laughs> listens to it or looks at it, great. You know, I'm out there, I'm a published. And that first piece that you post is the big courage hurdle. And then the second piece, right? But it, it actually diminishes over time. So I'm more used to how my voice sounds now. It sounded crazy the first couple of times I did it, <laughs> you know, yeah, voice inflection absolutely. and all of that. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, I'm I'm putting this out there because there might be someone else in a comparable seat as I am at a, whatever age, middle school, elementary school, college, post-college, and $50,000 in debt. And we need to hear that from the universe at different points in our lives. And that's kind of the motivation behind all of this.
1: Yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing is I've gotten more into social media recently. I For pretty much my entire career, I, I always just opted to do more of like lead by doing like just go out there and do good stuff but you don't necessarily need to talk about it or whatever that much like sure you can speak at a local event or something but I didn't publish a lot of anything I didn't make my own content and try to spread the message more widely but then as I started getting into social media a little bit more to kind of promote this podcast I've also realized the power of just putting it out there like put your message and your Path, your career journey, your struggles, your wins, your whatever out there, because it could inspire someone else to A, follow their own path, or B, maybe they're more intrigued in your path and you could help them get there. Or by sharing some of the difficult times as well, it'll show that, like, hey, this isn't going to be easy all the time. So don't quit just because it gets hard. Right. So there's so much you can do to help others on their journey by putting stuff up on social media and maybe. I shouldn't just say participating in social media in general where you're just like doing the latest TikTok dance or something, but actually putting your thoughts and your ideas and your perspective and your stories out on social media. I think that's what's powerful, not just, you know, taking selfies or something like that. It can be another path into kind of your background and spread much further, much quicker, I think. Um, But with that said, I wanted to also touch on your path of publishing because you've been doing the peas on moss for i think 13 plus years which is a lot longer than most people i know who are podcasting so how did you come to this conclusion so early that it was such a good idea to put content out in the world like i get that you wanted to document your own journey and help some other people but why podcasting why publishing content and If something comes to mind, are there any like highlights from that journey, that 13 plus year journey?
0: Oh, man. Well, when we do that math, that's kind of crazy. But yeah, it's, you know, okay. So if you go back, I started the Peas on Moss blog when I got accepted into the Seattle Culinary Academy. And I chose SCA because a mentor chef of mine, um, Graham Kerr, who's a celebrity chef, known as the Galloping Gourmet or Minimax, depending on how old you were when you watched him, he really encouraged me to take my love for food and my knowledge of nutrition and smoosh it together and go to culinary school so I can really earn the rights eventually to call myself a chef. And he literally said, if I were to go to culinary school today, I would go to the Seattle Culinary Academy and study under chef so-and-so. And I was like, whoa, well, that's an endorsement. I did tour the other culinary programs in Seattle just to make sure that the choice I was making was really aligned to my personal values. What I liked about SCA is that they had a sustainable kitchen management perspective, and really the chefs would go into our compost bins and make sure we weren't just willy-nilly wasting food. So that's been part of my life and my food ethos since the beginning of my professional cooking. The other thing they did is offered students opportunities to go to Quillis Ascot Farm, which is in the Spokane area of Washington State. And that farm's mission really was to connect culinary professionals with their farmers and understand the effort and the investment that goes into every single ingredient that we work with and how precious it is and how much responsibility is on us as chefs and culinary professionals. And I wanted to share that message and that mission as widely as I could. The other reason was because across the culinary program, we students had to set up our stations and be successful in short periods of meal service time. And so I started throwing pictures of my station on my blog so people could follow along and and give comments like, oh, I would never put the lettuce next to the tomatoes because your hands will be wet when you're grabbing one or the other. And it's like, oh, that's that's a good point. You know, and that kind of very basic knowledge. And it really followed through my journey as um, a cook and then leveraging that into work in restaurant groups and into a purchasing management position. And so... The blog is kind of this funny journal of my life. And every point in time, if you interviewed me then, would be a mix of, I don't know what I'm doing. And look at these cool things what I've, <laughs> that I've just done. And I still feel that way. There's just more years behind me now. And then again, the, the podcast part literally came from meeting research chefs and them saying, hey, if you want to jump on a call and talk of a career, I'm happy to do so. And I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Do you mind if I record it? And then, and I had recorded them initially just for myself. But the information those chefs dropped, just again, as side comments about their own careers, were so good. I was like, chef, you have to let me share this with the world, even if it's just your mom and your boss. Like, can we please just put this out there? They're like, okay, yeah, we can do that. So we re-recorded a few of those conversations. And then it just kind of started to build. And it's not, you know, I don't have this like world famous podcast by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a big deal for the 1,200 people who identify as research chefs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But again, it's just another way to show cool careers and their stories because we don't really talk to the chefs. There's the celebrity chefs, right, who all get their own TV shows and their branded pots and pans. But what about the rest of us who are actually part of these food companies? When you walk down a grocery store aisle and you're looking at all these cool packaged foods, there's a chef and there are product developers and food scientists and supply chain operators who are doing all of that work for you. And I want them and their stories to be known. And I want our marketing teams and our designers to be known because it's a lot of work to get a really cool package onto a shelf.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the more I've been learning about that, career path or that option as a chef I I find it incredibly fascinating too because you know there's something amazing about designing a great menu for a restaurant but there's also something amazing about helping an entrepreneur translate this wacky idea they developed in a kitchen into something that's actually commercially viable and will be shelf stable yet still with quality ingredients and have the taste and texture that they intend to when somebody opens that product three months down the road (laughs) or something like that you know that's super fascinating, like that we can put that same love and care that we put into a beautiful meal at a restaurant into packaged foods that are hopefully uh, providing an amazing experience for people, but also creating a positive impact in the world in some way, like making these products healthier, making them more sustainable, better ingredients, you know, better packaged and all that kind of stuff. So, I didn't know that much about research chefs. I actually thought about going into Culinary arts. Uh, I was like trying to decide between like graphic design architecture and culinary arts and ended up just going down this path. But I've always had a personal habit of cooking most of the meals I eat and I just love food. Food's always like been a big part of my life and passion and hobbies. (laughs) Like most of most of my hobbies and especially around travel end up being around going places and trying the different restaurants or breweries or distilleries or whatever else i can find i'm just super interested in what people are creating through food. so anyway, that's cool that there you discovered these paths and you just found ways to share how other people came to their journey and share their wisdom with others as well. i'm are curious are there any big highlights that you could mention on like some of your favorite interviews or like cuz you've probably with this much content got way more than somebody could dig through. so like if you were to point people to a couple highlights Episodes or blog articles or something like that? Where should they start?
0: Oh, that's thank you so much for that. I had two questions back to you, but I'll, I'll answer your first one and then I'll ask you the question. But the episodes I had the most fun with let's see, Justin Kantak, he was the president of the RCA. He took over in 2019, and he's the only president of the RCA who never had his term in person. The pandemic happened and everything was done virtually. And I was really fascinated by the way he thought through things. He applies a version of game theory that's a little less negative sounding than some of the versions that you can find online if you Wikipedia it, because I totally had to. Yeah. But he's constantly <laughs> thinking ahead and working through scenarios. And I really thought that was an interesting way to think. Because when we talk about mise en place, it's usually about the ingredients to be ready. When you actually turn on your pan, everything's on fire, literally, and you're trying to get ingredients in there, Right. So the other part of mise en place is your mental mise en place when you go into a scenario or a scene. And he was somebody who really taught that well. I have interviewed Mark Crowell from Cullinex multiple times. I think his perspective as an entrepreneur, as somebody who came up as a chef, owned a restaurant, worked for corporate, and then started his own consultancy. I thought his perspective of business was really good. Let's see. There are a couple of favorites that I've had. Oh, actually, Barbara Zotto. She was a chef from New York who worked in Seattle as well. I really leaned on the Seattle crew this time, but her stories of kitchens was really interesting because it was a stark reminder of why I left kind of the bloodthirsty side of corporate life because, or sorry, of of kitchen life because it was this whole, I will climb to the top over your corpse, sort of mentality. And she talks <laughs> yeah. about the resiliency that she had to develop despite that. And, you know, I really admired her story and the fact that she came through that and, and she approached it with such humor. So there's really big, heavy belly laughs in uh, that conversation. And then, honestly, you know, I think I've interviewed a chef named Andrew Schatz a couple of times. She's in Chicago she actually talked about what it was like to not be considered a research chef by her own peers because she didn't own a restaurant before she worked in R&D. And it's a really negative sounding intro, right, to that story because it comes across at minimum elitist, right, of like, well, you can't really call yourself a chef or a research chef because you didn't do those things. And I think for me, Part of the imposter syndrome that rings through my head sometimes is, do I deserve to be here? Do I deserve to have I earned this? And Anne really helped me reframe that and say, well, what are you good at? What do you like to do? How do you want to show up? Then hang that shingle out there, put your energy out there and go for it. And naysayers can be naysayers and you will prove them wrong. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's intense and incredible. And I was really grateful to her for that message.
1: Yeah, that sounds like all great stories. So we'll, we'll try to make sure we put some links to each of those.
0: I'll have to add those for to you. give people
1: a head start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. So and then you said you had a follow-up question.
0: I had a question for you because your career split options sound really good. And knowing that you're a designer and a strategist, I'm like, okay, well, that path seems so obvious, but it sounds like you had to make a decision not to go be a food professional in that traditional sense. So, what was that tipping point for you?
1: You know, I didn't know a lot about these different career paths. I knew that I liked the idea of business just because I came from a line of entrepreneurs and that seemed cool to be able to kind of control your own destiny and create your own kind of path. So that sounded fun, some sort of business focus. And then I liked creativity, like art, just creative problem solving. And I found out there was this career in graphic design that you could kind of combine that creativity and business. I also liked the idea of architecture and that it was like creativity and placemaking that could be really fun. And then I liked culinary arts because I just grew up loving to cook and had a grandmother who You know, had her own garden and cooked so many things from scratch and just made amazing food. And that kind of inspired me to make a lot of my own food. And so I had that connection with food. And I thought, like, well, food and business equals like culinary arts, like maybe opening a restaurant or doing something like that. I think not knowing what those career paths were really like, I had to just kind of like pick one of them to go towards. And the tiny bit I had heard about the culinary world is how cutthroat it is, how difficult it is to actually make it through and how most restaurants fail and like all this kind of stuff. And I was like, Ooh, that sounds pretty rough. And then I, and sometimes the the lifestyle can be pretty unhealthy too. You know, like you have to work crazy hours and a lot of kitchens are full of drugs and stuff like that to get them through the rush periods. And I was like, okay, well maybe that's not the path. And then the architecture world, I had heard that you might work in that field for like 10 plus years before you ever get to do any of your own kind of creative work because you have to spend so many years kind of working under people and doing a bunch of production work. And then the projects can take so long. You might work on one project for five or 10 years before it's done. So how many projects would you actually get to do before you're career ends like unless you're some world famous architect who has a ton of people and you get to do these cool sketches and move on so that felt like well you don't get as much creativity as i would like maybe in that field it's like 90 percent engineering 10 percent creativity or something like that and i wasn't sure if that felt right so what was left was this career path in graphic design where you could kind of be sort of independent. You could create your own path. You could choose theoretically who you want to work for. You could have, pro. you could do 20 projects in a year and you could do all sorts of different types of projects from, you know, just designing a brochure to designing an entire brand to designing whatever you wanted. Like there were a lot of graphic designers out in the world who ended up designing furniture or designing clothing lines or design, you know, like you could kind of take that and jump off anywhere else. So I guess that path, the graphic design path just felt like it had the most options available and maybe presented the most access, quick access and easy access to finding my own path and exploring my creativity without some of those other hurdles. And I I suppose I thought that I could always go back and try to do some of those other things later if graphic design didn't work. So that was my uneducated, like I didn't... Get to mentor with other people or see what the world was really like, and, and it kind of changed my perspective. And to be honest, I'm still holding in the back of my in my back pocket the the option of opening up a restaurant at some point. Probably won't go into architecture at this stage, but maybe still open up a restaurant like as a, like a retirement project or something.
0: <laughs> be a good yeah, way to sink a retirement. Probably not sure. be the
1: chef, but <laughs> <laughs> but like hopefully I'll accumulate enough knowledge about business and you know, have a little nest egg and have some sort of cool cuisine or or perspective on food that I could bring to a city that doesn't have that offering yet and maybe be more of the funder, manager, marketer type person for the restaurant, but just like have some way to kind of bring that passion to life.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're young. We have a lot of opportunity. If you go in with a realistic perspective, yeah, why not? Bring your food vision and creativity to life in another way. I, I never want to sound like I'm discouraging people. It's a tough business, as you know. And yeah, you mentioned the chef life and chef culture. And I wanted to share two people that I've met more recently, who have interesting podcasts as well about chef life culture. Um, The first is chef Adam Lamb. He runs the chef life radio. And he talks a lot about mental health and the way we valorize really toxic behavior in kitchens, and we need to address that head on. We as people in the industry, and I really like how he's choosing to show up. He's got a lot of lived experiences, and honestly, he's one of those mentors who he's like, don't step in that pothole, you'll break an ankle, because I did, kind of, kind of guy. And then the other is Ray DeLucci. He's um, Line Cook Thoughts, LCT, I guess, and he also went to CIA but has now chosen to leave restaurants. And he has a really well-documented journey in that because he actually maintained a blog and podcast as well and writes for Plate Magazine. Um, And both of them really talk about um, kitchen culture and ways that we don't have to put up with this and maintain it. So Gage, when you come back to the restaurant world actively, we'll be a different world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, that's the thing too, is the more I learn about all the possibilities in culinary professions. If I knew all that then, if I had been following, if the peas on moss existed when I was trying to decide (laughs) where to go with my career path, you know, it might have been a different story. And I'm, I'm sure there's always great examples and bad examples in every industry. Like there's plenty of toxic work culture stuff that goes on in design agencies as well, right? So, it's like no industry is free from the bad apples. And every industry has its shining stars or its more meaningful paths that you could pursue. So, I, I don't want anyone listening to hear my decision process and not go into any culinary <laughs> degrees because, again, it was a very uneducated, uninformed perspective. But that's just how I made the decision at that time.
0: It's interesting I'm sure to hear that. There's plenty of great
1: paths to go down
0: because I see you with such towering strengths in design and strategy. I, I honestly, were connected again through how you've chosen to show up in social media and ask really thought provoking questions. Um, and I really admire that of you. And so I would have called design and creativity in the way that you're living out as the towering strength. So again, I understand that when we're trying to make these decisions in high school, it feels so permanent and it feels so like, oh my gosh, I'm picking this path and I will never get to you know go back. I like that you have the back pocket plan. I like that you have the kind of the phased approach of what we're doing in our careers today because this fits our lives today. But we'll have other life circumstances later that will allow us to do other things, but then won't allow us to do the things we might do now.
1: Yeah. Just because like you can go on a path, that path may not continue forever, but there will be other paths and your journey continues, I think. So I think there's so many people who get into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they're afraid to shift their career because they're like, oh, I'll be starting over. But there's plenty of examples of people who've thrived in their new career starting in those careers super late in life. And, you know, let's be honest, 30s and 40s and 50s isn't that late if you're planning on picking a career that like you're passionate about enough that you could kind of continue doing for the rest of your life. You still got plenty of time, right? So I wouldn't discourage people from starting somewhere, seeing what you can learn and then pivoting as you need to, partly because I think it'll make you even better in that new field because you'll be bringing a different perspective that other people don't have. And one of the talks I was giving for a little while to the design community was this idea of what I was calling a one-pot life, which was to suggest a cooking kind of term of like, you know, just put all the ingredients into one pot instead of having all these dishes. And my thinking was that as a creative or as a whatever field you're in, you can combine your passions in life with your work skills, with what you're talented at, with what will pay you, kind of like that icky guy framework that we are talking about before. So for me, I didn't necessarily say no to food. I just found a way to weave food into my business and design career path, right? So it gives me kind of a, a richer sense of identity and a more kind of unique approach to everything I do that not every designer cares as much about food as I do, or not every business person knows about as much about design as I do. And by pulling all these things together, I create a very unique and authentic path for me that still has flexibility. Like I said, I could still open up a restaurant and still identify as a designer and a business person by running that restaurant and doing the marketing and doing the brand. You know, like there's there's so many paths there. I can, by having this one pot life, so to speak, I have options and I'm never stuck, right? there's opportunity, plenty of opportunity, like we're talking about a hundred different ways you could live into each profession or more. I'm just making that number up. So, if I have four passions, sustainability, business, food, and design, that gives me probably an infinite number of ways I could express myself and build a career around those interests.
0: Absolutely. I love that you talked about the Chapter one that you chose informs how you show up in chapter two. You bring those skills forward. You don't just end that chapter and go on to something else and you're just fresh, you know, skillless person. You're bringing all of that forward. I really felt that way when I left the military that I'd wasted my first four years of life, <laughs> you know, because at the ripe old age of 26, you feel pretty old. <laughs> You're
1: like it's too late to do anything oh, else now. I'm know. stuck. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I was a non-traditional older student when I went to culinary school because I was twenty-six and it was just like, oh Lord, you know, I'm creaky and all of this stuff, and now I'm looking at twenty-six year olds like, well, great, you know. <laughs> but I really I did feel kind of embarrassed of those first four years because I didn't feel like those were useful. People didn't recognize that being in the Air Force meant that we had certain type of leadership training, certain sort of values instillment into us and all of this stuff. And there are, are military veterans who come out of their career fields feeling like, okay, well, what do I do next? Because, you know, I was an aircraft maintenance officer. Well, haven't met too many of them in networking events. And you're like, okay, but you're really good at logistics. You're really good at organizing. You're good at looking at the big picture. The objective is to get the plane to fly, Right. So what are all of the things that you need to do to make that happen? And we use the analogy of building a plane while you fly. So I don't see why this maintenance guy, gal, couldn't participate in that, you know? And it took me a while to kind of house that experience and hold it and know that I'm going to get to go back and access that knowledge and that experience and that backbone later. But I wasn't in that stage of life at that exact moment coming up in kitchens And at the same time, I didn't really participate in a lot of the stuff that goes on in kitchens, a lot of that hazing, because I was A, too old, and B, I'd already gone through and seen those hazing rituals, and it was just like, no, I I see this, I recognize this, I'm not playing. And I think that did affect how I came up in kitchens, I promoted a little bit faster, because I knew I was there to do a certain type of job, and I was very serious about my work. Serious and fun, I hope. We'll see what other people say about me, but, you know. But I was able to bring that kind of sturdy resiliency, that kind of, okay, this stinks, but we're just going to ruck through it together sort of ability, that dig deep, as Brene Brown would call it, because I had those experiences. And now I'm getting to talk about that on the podcast. I've met military veterans in the career field where I'm like, oh, see, you have this knowledge. You have this strength because we, we learned it through hard times in our first careers. And now we're getting to apply that. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. The people who are listening to this podcast, if they've done 39 and a half million things and they still want to go into food and they want to go into sustainable businesses, do it. Know your runway, know your landing zone, but do it because the world hasn't heard your voice and seen your creativity yet. And they should. We should absolutely, absolutely get to see that.
1: Yeah. And I think people worry about like, well, if I start over in this new career path, I'm starting completely over from scratch and it's going to take me 10, 20, whatever years to get my shit together and like make something of myself in that field. But that's not the case because you bring, like you're just saying, you bring all of your past selves to this new career path. Therefore, you're going to be way ahead of the curve of everyone else that's only one year into that career path because you're going to bring so much more wisdom, experience, knowledge. You're going to have a better understanding of what's important to learn and what's what you can kind of like tuck in the back pocket for later because you've lived life. Whereas the students who are you know, st- still in school and haven't gone out into the working world yet and haven't learned through hard knocks yet don't really know which lessons to pay attention to or don't really understand what's important to get out of school. But when you go back to school or enter a new career, you have much different priorities and you're going to focus much harder on learning what you need to learn and you're going to work harder because you know that it's going to make the difference and you're going to probably bring a unique perspective and unique experiences to the field and stand out from everyone else because you bring something much richer, right? So, it's almost in my mind like a detriment to not bring multiple experiences into whatever you do. Like if you if all you've ever done is this one thing, you're probably really damn good at it. But the chances of you being like really innovative in that field might be less because you're not getting inspiration from anywhere else. You're not crossing new perspectives. You're not bringing innovative new frameworks or strategies from this industry into your industry. If you just have your blinders on the whole time, you'll get maybe really good at a craft, but you won't necessarily change that industry. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can go really deep and change the industry. But I would imagine that even the people who go deep and create some amazing new invention, that amazing new invention was inspired by something I saw someone else do. I can almost guarantee that. Like it's always inspired by some other part of your life. Like I was just hearing like, uh, I think it was just something on social media about like talking about all these famous inventors in life and how their big aha moment didn't come from them toiling away at their desk. Their big aha moment came from them taking a step back and going and sitting under a tree and thinking for a little bit or taking a nap or taking a shower or maybe talking to a friend. And that's what lit the aha moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what you really said there as far as bringing that knowledge forward, you're also bringing a network forward into this new industry. And that's something not to regret. You know, people who who are listening to the show who are college students... Shouldn't feel like, oh, well, I've got nothing unless I go work. No, you've got a different perspective as well. And I think together, you and the career crossovers could do really incredible things. The other is, you know, don't rush into school so quickly. Give yourself some time to live some life. I mean, I chose to do my MBA 15 years postgraduate, graduating my undergrad. And a lot of us were pushed towards grad school younger, I was going into the military, so grad school wasn't really the right away way option. But as you were talking about kind of coming fresh out of school or anything like that, I was thinking about two things. First, the MBA program I'm in is a weekend program for working professionals. So our average age is 38. That means we have at least 10, 15 years of working experience among you know each student there. And they bring incredible insights about their industries and recognize the pain points that we face as we try to transform our industries to be more sustainable, right? It's one thing to look at companies' sustainability reports and look at what their missions are. It's another thing to really um, be part of the rubber hitting the road and trying to push this flywheel to be doing no harm business. But what's past that? If we're now no longer an exploitative company or following some sort of extractive policies, what's next after that? Do we just get to net zero and then literally stop and then just the planet kind of more slowly dies? Or are we going to try really look at regeneration and being better to our planet and really digging into what humanity's role is to make this better? So that's the first thought that I had is those older students who are returning to an MBA program now, Bring a really different perspective than it, if we had gone straight from school. And that ties me back to the podcast because if you listen to the series of interviews from like 2015, 2016, I'm really going through that journey of do I go get a master's of food science now? Do I go get an MBA? You know, what is the divergence of that path? Because it felt very divergent. If I was going to go get a master's of food science, I would go do either extreme research or really focused technical leadership, you know, be an R&D director and a VP, et cetera. Now looking at my MBA, and I'm I'm two semesters from graduating and good grief, I cannot wait. <laughs> you know, I'm, I think to myself still, I could go back and be a really differently informed technical manager. But I think an MBA is actually very helpful for R&D leadership to have because we now... We get to have these conversations with our counterparts across the organization who don't have research and development tasks, but whose buy-in and commitment and engagement are absolutely critical to success here. I'm thinking about my marketing directors and my market insights partners. I'm thinking about my regulatory and food safety managers. I'm thinking about our ops guys and gals, and I'm thinking about the salespeople. We're all tasked with moving the ball forward. It's not just one person who carries it all the way. And so the MBA helped me contextualize that, but the lived experience, the decade plus of working really helped me live that out in a way that you can't learn from books. And I bring that forward to our conversations because I think it helps me be a better partner or counterpart to you in your design and creative roles.
1: Right. Yeah, I love that. It's a great way of... Tying that all together, one of the ways I was going to – and we probably can put this subject to bed in a second and and move on because I I feel like you and I could probably geek out on this for a couple more hours. But the way I was picturing it is when you go to school, you're learning some skill sets or knowledge around the profession, right? And that's great. That's valuable. You need that to get started. But when you have lived a life and worked in multiple careers and whatever else and you're you're not fresh out of school anymore – You've also brought knowledge of life, of people, of collaboration, of leadership, do's and don'ts, of you know, maybe tightened set of values. You know about world events and news and culture and like there's all this other stuff that then you're able to bring into that. So, that's the main thing that I'm talking about when I say fresh out of school versus somebody with all that lived experience. That person with all that lived experience I think we'll be able to hit the ground running faster slash move a little bit faster in their career because the other person who's fresh out of school, not that they don't have talents and skills and all that other kind of stuff, but they're going to have to spend at least 50% of their mental energy and emotional energy just learning how to adult and pay your bills and get along with your boss and your coworkers and do all this other kind of stuff that that other person who's like re-entering the field, (laughs) hopefully they've figured some of that stuff out by now. And they can now just cut through the forest and, and see our cut through the trees and see the forest or however that phrase goes, that they'll have a better understanding of what matters and what to focus on. So with that said, again, we could probably geek out on this subject for a little while, I can tell, but for those listening who are interested in some more of your career path, obviously they can go listen to your entire catalog and read your, read your blog, et cetera. But some highlights. So I know you were in the military, you went to culinary school, And then we talked a little bit about what you're doing now at Griffith. But the in-between moments before you got there, you were working internally at Sugar Mountain, which is, for those in the Seattle area, that's the company that owns Beachers. Uh, You were working at Lundberg. You were working with Bulletproof, like some pretty well-known heavy-hitter companies in product development. So can you talk a little bit about some of your career highlights or whatever working in in that phase of your career?
0: Yeah, I mean, the... Those companies were incredible proving grounds for a lot of different skills. Sugar Mountain Guest Services was right after Modernist Cuisine. Uh, my contract didn't get renewed to do development there. And a lot of us on the team were switching around. And I was just like, oh no, what do I do? You know, I wasn't really sure that I had enough experience to leverage into food product development. I Again, didn't really know where that was and what it was. And I called... A friend who I had met actually before I went to culinary school, um, and she had kindly given me an audit of my resume. And I said, "If I want to go be a research chef, heavy on the quotes, what do I do?" And so she had been a mentor and friend through all of that. And so I called Alison Lieber, and I was like, "Hey, I'm not getting my contract renewed at Modernist. What should I do next?" She's like. I am actually interviewing for a purchasing manager position at at, um, Sugar Mountain and you'd work on Beechers. And I was like, heck yeah, it's the best cheese out there. So definitely. So I came in, interviewed. I obviously did well enough to get the job. And then Kurt Dammeier, who's the owner of Sugar Mountain Guest Services and Beechers, the Beecher name is actually from his family he caught me in the kitchen redoing a recipe because the yields were wrong and I was pushing back on a contract. And he immediately moved me into a product development chef position and they hired a new purchasing manager who was absolutely incredible and so much better at it than I was and much more comfortable in that space because culinary and product development were really the places that I loved being and thrived there. And they were really supportive of my learning curve going from restaurants into corporate product development. And so I really credit them for that. And then I credit Kurt for saying, I think you've outgrown the product development that we need right now. So why don't you find another space? And I was like, wow, that is brutal. And I was really hurt at the time. And he's going to listen to this and be like, what? (laughs) But what really it was that encouragement of someone to say, hey, you have strengths elsewhere and I think you need to be encouraged to go figure that out. And I'm really grateful that he did that. He had the, honestly, the awareness to say that instead of just letting me sit there and be bored. So I moved to Lundberg Family Farms. And that felt like kind of the first big corporate R&D type of job I had. Scientists who worked for me, we worked with the sensory group and actually established the sensory group. Let me not be coy about that. (laughs) And we built a A protocol for testing new concepts for rice seasoning blends and really drew on our operational experts to share their thoughts about rice product innovation there. So, we actually would hold three sensory panels so that we could hit the majority of the shifts across the company because those are the folks working with the rice. They were the farmers, they were the processors. We had them come in, we'd set up these like kindergarten privacy booths and would give a person a dish of rice and then a little form and they'd fill it out. And we had some really good mentors in sensory science really help us build that out. So again, like Lundberg was a really fantastic place to really test my identity as a research chef and product developer, as an R&D leader. And then I went to Bulletproof because I was really interested in the, the startup space. I wanted to see what combining my nutrition science brain with my chef brain would do. (laughs) And because Bulletproof is kind of a branded ketogenic style diet. Dave Asprey is is the founder of the Bulletproof diet. And we were really tasked with bringing a couple of food products to life that were high in a certain type of MCT oil. And we did bars and beverages and and, um, protein powders, etc. And From that perspective, the food science was really heavy, and I was lucky to have incredible mentors who helped me understand the science, helped me move through, again, that imposter syndrome piece to understanding what I needed to know so that I could help make decisions or find the data to inform the decisions that needed to be made. Yeah, the scientist there, uh, Rodney Johnson, was really open-minded to having someone who was a little bit unconventional with my own career background and really relied on me as a culinary professional and a food scientist to come in and say, okay, I think this is what we need to do and make this product taste as good as it's going to get with, with the ingredient restrictions we have. And I learned a lot from the mentors there. I mean, I could, I could name a zillion people, but Rodney and Lisa Unlu were incredible scientists there. Gabriel Paulino was a research scientist who really focused on metabolism. And he went on to go found this other incredible company in the Bay Area. So he's he's still in startup life, found it very fascinating, but I burned out on startup life in three years. I was like, Oh, that's a lot. (laughs) And it was really good, though. I really helped solidify my identity as a senior scientist. I worked with a couple of incredible suppliers to Bulletproof who let me in on the science and really helped me understand how their functional ingredients worked and then how we could leverage that into the product, knowing what we wanted to do. So that was a huge highlight because I I felt like I kind of saw the early stages of chemical and physical science in a gourmet sense at Modernist Cuisine make that full circle to Bulletproof where I got to see some of that technology apply in the industry. And it was fun to see that thread kind of come through. Yeah. And then from Bulletproof, I went to uh, Griffith Foods. Justin Kantak, in full disclosure, recruited me to Griffith. You know, he was like, you're a research chef and product developer. You ask good questions because of the podcast. I'm starting a segment. And if you would like to learn business development and have a baked in mentor, come join my team. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. You know, and it's been a crazy cool three years, really, really crazy because of the pandemic and the food industry has been dramatically impacted. You know, our supply chain has been massively disrupted. Our people have been essential workers and frontline exposures through the past three years, you know, two years and whatever months we're at, nine months. And we can't dismiss that too easily. It's been really rough on the food industry to deal with the pandemic, deal with the after effects of it. I think it's allowed us to surface some tough conversations, and there's still a lot of work to be done. And I'm really grateful that I was able to do that with Justin Kantak, with the Griffith Foods team. And I'm really excited to see what happens next. I'm getting to really take a stronger focus on sustainability and where Griffith is going to go with our sustainable sourcing, with the way we work with our partners, the ingredients that we source and provide to customers. And I'm really excited for that chapter.
1: That's great. Is that part of why you're doing the MBA is because of your role within Griffith or was it just something you wanted to do on your own?
0: That's a good question. Officially, because Griffith helps pay for this. It is to help me be (laughs) a good leader there. I'm a leader in training, I guess, there right now. But it's also personal interest, right? So the sustainable kitchen management with Seattle Culinary Academy, this is sort of that next, I guess, transitional pivotal stage to go in get more knowledge and be able to share that out. So yes, it's to help Griffith be better at sustainability in the ways that I can influence it. It's to support Brian Griffith, the chairman, um, and whose name obviously is on the company, achieve the goals that he set out for his company. And then it's also for me in how I want to impact the industry overall and help to inform the strategy, help to build up better businesses wherever they are and whoever they are so that we can continue to transform the industry together, right? I'm just one more hand on that flywheel, just like yours.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So one thing that I want to bring back from what you said early in the conversation was you don't call yourself a chef anymore because you're in business development now. But I'd be curious to hear that because obviously you've spent a lot of time in being kind of a a product development chef, a research and development chef, etc., And now you're in this new role, but is that an identity that doesn't continue? Like, for example, even though I do mostly like managing the business and doing strategy and stuff with modern species now, I still identify as a designer because for me, designing isn't just a thing that you do, but it's like a way of thinking and a way of seeing and experiencing the world. So I still identify as a designer, even if I'm not like in files designing all day. So, I'm curious, like, do you really not see yourself as a chef anymore? Because I feel like bringing that part of your identity into this business development role could be really powerful. But, like, putting that identity aside and putting it on a shelf and saying, that's not me anymore, feels like it's, a, you know, dismissing a lot of your experience and a lot of your knowledge and passion and why you're coming to this role in Griffiths.
0: Dang, you went right for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is such good pushback. And it's sort of the same. Fear, I think, that I tap into with with saying that I'm a military veteran and that I can kind of pack that up into an easy word that you, you put on a shelf. I think you're right. I think bringing my chef identity and my skill sets forward would really enhance my business development skills and the way I show up. I think I intentionally shelved it when I was at Griffith because we try to keep the salespeople and the product developers in our lanes so that the scientists can go do the scientific things and the salespeople can go sell. And I do think that that is a bit of a disservice to the customer in the end, to perhaps the contributors themselves, because we might risk leaving some skills and some insights on the table. One thing I've admired about Justin is that he actually recruited food scientists to his two sales positions. So me, And then Jesse Pulaski, who's the other food scientist turned business developer, account director. And you're right. We do actually let more of our food science and chef skills come through than you would think because of the pandemic disruptions in supply chain. So we actually understand what those functional ingredients are, especially when we're out of them and have to troubleshoot (laughs) with our customer, right? Because we're trying to tell them, well, you're out of X. I'm like, oh, my God, what does X do? And it's like, well, it does this. So we could do these, you know, we could use these other ingredients as substitutes. You'll maintain your claims. Our scientists have already tested these formulas. Here you go. And I think it does allow us to talk our customers through a problem and to the solutions that are possible and help them have as many tools at hand so they can make a decision that fits their brand's needs and then also allows us to continue to work with them. So you're right. I do sound dismissive of that chef identity. I think I'm, I separate those because I want folks who do sit in those chef positions to understand that I recognize the rank and the responsibility that they have that I don't carry anymore. That might be self-induced.
1: Yeah, maybe. I also wonder, like you, you mentioned that person that was on your podcast who talked about some of the discrimination against R&D chefs versus, you know, whatever you would call a regular chef in a restaurant or something like that. Like they don't think you're quite as good as they are or something like that. So could some of it also be coming from that? It's like you feel like there's a lot of elitism to some degree in the culinary world. And if you tell someone you're a chef, they might be like, you're not a chef. You don't work at a restaurant or you're not like you're not developing products right now. And like there's some of that ego that's brought into it. So therefore, you're kind of like lowering yourself, but you're like pulling that identity off just to not hurt someone else's feelings or something too?
0: Yeah, dang. Well, if, if uh, restaurants don't work, therapy might work for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's no. that's really astute. Um, I think so. I think it's it could be an anticipation of feedback that I get from people. It could be imposter syndrome coming through. It could just be the fact that I don't really want to get confused with a restaurant chef because our responsibilities are different. The weight on our shoulders is different. But yeah, I I certainly don't want to have people feel that a research chef is less. And I do want to defend that position that research chefs are peers of restaurant chefs. And we have different careers and we have different ways of showing up. But we are all responsible for the bottom line, really, and how we bring food to customers. Because ultimately, we're in food because we like to serve delicious things to people for them to enjoy and to fit into their lives and the the day part that they're consuming it and make their lives happy for that moment. Right. Um, Yeah. So research chefs and restaurant chefs, it is kind of an age old argument potentially. And I kind of had chosen my words, but yeah, it's such an interesting idea. I'll have to think about that one a bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, every industry has those kind of some of that baggage of who gets to call themselves a designer or a chef or who gets to call themselves the, you know, whatever else. I'm sure there's a ton of other industries, but I've witnessed it in just multiple industries I'm in. So it is interesting, though, that I think some of it's maybe imposter syndrome, some of it's humility or worrying about other people's feelings or sometimes like sometimes when we pull some of these labels off or diminish our own resume, so to speak, to soften our experience for other people or whatever it's just something i'm kind of exploring lately too is how we talk about ourselves sometimes is more in relation to how we who we're talking to and and how we think they might perceive that right whereas if we just lean more into our identities and and come into life as our full self without necessarily apologizing for it but talking about the complexities that you are a research chef you are a military veteran you are an MBA student, almost graduate, etc. Like all those things are powerful and they tell so much more about you.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, it's diminishing myself is something I think I do easily. And I, I definitely am working on that. I think it goes back to that whole Superman comparison, right? I can talk really boldly about helping someone else identify their superpowers, but really stepping forward proudly with the experiences I have. That is really hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's your homework. You know, you're going to work on that. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think we could geek out on a lot of these subjects for a little bit or for a while longer. But since we've already been talking for more than an hour, (laughs) I should probably start wrapping this up. So, to wrap up, how would you define better for the world in terms of food, I guess?
0: Ooh, I think it is in restoration and regeneration, if that is for the planet's health, you know, obviously trying to limit the effects of climate change, or if it's restorative to the people in our community and whoever we're serving. I would say both of those are places that we can see better for the world show up.
1: I love it. Because I mean, if you think about it, well, foodie folks like us eat food for the experience of it, the point of food is to sustain life and make us healthy, not sick, right? But so much of our food system has gotten to the point where it's making both us and the planet sick instead of healthy. So getting the world back to the original purpose of food, which is to make us healthier and do it in a circular kind of regenerative way where it's not just making us healthy, but also making the planet healthy and so on and so forth. I think that's that's a bold It shouldn't be bold, but a bold goal and something that's very much needed in the world. So I totally appreciate that.
0: An untapped resource with that is really understanding indigenous people's ways with their food traditions and and not to, you know, put them on this unrealistic pedestal, but really understand what our relationship is with the planet and with our food and to each other, because we have responsibility to the nine let's see, 8 billion people that we have on the planet now and understand that we have to work together to do this. It can't be um, exploitative. It can't be everything comes to the richer or louder nations or the ones with the bigger guns. It has to be where we're all in this together. We're kind of more that planet citizen, not so much just the citizen of whatever nation we're in.
1: Yeah, I love that. Like Thinking about our culture around food, needs to change like we can't just change the system and fix it because the system is broken and it needs to be fixed but we have to change the cultures we have around food as well like i just saw i can't quote the source because i just saw it scrolling through linkedin or something like that but i saw some sort of stat that said there was a research study that showed that when people eat with two people like eat socially with another person at the table both those people will probably end up eating like 15% more or something. I'm just throwing these numbers out there, but to give you a general idea, if you eat at a table with, I think it was like four or three other people, like a table of four will eat 50% more. If you eat at a table with like eight people, everyone at the table is going to eat on average 96% or something like that, more food. And as I was processing that, I was thinking, is that just because we're distracted through conversation or is it, social pressure to some degree like you're with other people and they want you to try this dish and so you're gonna eat that dish or you don't want to be rude to the chef or or whatever is it some other kind of cultural thing that like when you're around other people it's about the joy of sustaining and eating and serving others I don't, I don't know like what is that that makes us eat more when we're sharing a meal with other folks because that just comes back to the culture and like part of sustainability of food you know sure we shouldn't waste food in the food industry but we also waste a lot of food either a buying more than we need and throwing it out in in individual homes or (laughs) buying and eating more than we need right because we also have a big health problem especially in this country of people eating way more calories than they need to or bad calories instead of good calories so some of that could just be a cultural social norm which also needs to get fixed at the same time that we're fixing the general food industry, like growing healthier food and making healthier food and you know, transporting that food in a more sustainable way around the globe. Yeah. So
0: We have a lot of work cut out for us. <laughs> as, yeah.
1: How do we fix that culture side? And you're right. It's probably some of it is probably going back to how indigenous cultures treated food. Some of it could be like finding our new relationship with food because the world is different now. So we can't ignore the fact that there are Grocery stores with packaged food on the shelves that's maybe not good for us where, you know, indigenous cultures didn't even have that option. So, of course, they didn't choose that option. So, I think it's, yeah, exactly, totally. So, anyway, as beautiful stuff. I'm, I'll just end by saying, you know, thank you for going on this unique journey of yours and for documenting that journey for others because... Like if you change one person's career path or whatever, that's a, that's a huge impact you've had in life. But with publishing the content for as long as you have, you've probably changed dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of people's career paths. So you're big influence on the world in that way. And by kind of sharing your experience, you're helping other people kind of find their place in the world. And then, of course, as you're, as a fellow sustainability geek, I appreciate that you're not just trying to make delicious food better food experiences or move the food industry forward, but you're trying to move it forward in a more sustainable and regenerative way. So thank you for all that you're doing. And thanks for carving out a chunkier of your time on a, on a weeknight to come and share your story with our community.
0: Thank you for inviting me. And um, Gage, I'm excited to see you at another event too.
1: Yeah, hopefully really soon. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Kimberly or Peas on Moss, visit peasonmoss.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com.